0: Today, please turn in your Bibles to the book of of 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel chapter 12. You'll find this in your Pew Bible on page 489. Well, last week I've completed a series of sermons through the book of Colossians. And now I've decided to preach a series of sermons through the life of Solomon. There's a lot of historical figures in the Bible, and it's often helpful to look at the life of someone and what you learn about God and His grace and justice and various things through a person's life. And I'm looking forward to this new series in the life of Solomon. And today, we're going to look at Solomon's birth in 2 Samuel chapter 12 now what I want to do today his birth is mentioned in verse 24 but I'm not going to read it right now Uh, we are going to look at it later in the sermon what I want to do is tell you the context of Solomon's birth you can't appreciate his birth unless you see the big picture what's happening at this time in history in the life of David And this context is surrounded by darkness, death, evil, misery, heartbreak, and even the grace of God. And when we see the details of this context, it will illumine a lot of these things together and pull it together. So let us begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this passage of Scripture, that you will encourage us, with it and even what you're teaching your church in the time whenever Solomon was born, and how this even rightly applies to us today it's in Jesus christ's name we pray amen well you'll notice that in your bulletin there's a little outline that that summarizes Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12. You don't need to look at it right now, but later you can look at it when you go home. And notice where it begins. The context of Solomon's birth begins in chapter 11, verse 1. Let me just read chapter 11, verse 1, and I'll start telling the history from there. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, 2 Samuel. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You'll notice that this city here, listen, the city is Rabbah of Ammon. It's mentioned here in verse 1 and at the very end of chapter 12, They're finally going to siege the city and destroy the city and take the city. And David's going to put the crown of the king on his head. We'll see that at the very end of chapter 12. So there's a beginning and there's an ending. Chapter chapter 11 and chapter 12 begin and end with the same theme. Now what I want to do is continue to tell the context of what happens here. You all have heard a lot of this before, but maybe you haven't heard some of the details that I'm going to mention today. So let's move on after verse 1. What happens? After verse 1 in chapter 11, David looks down from his roof and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And she's not simply taking a bath because, you know, for a a daily routine. She's taking a bath to cleanse herself from her impurity. She's actually honoring the law of God when she is taking her bath there because she's cleaning herself according to the, the, the Levitical Command in the book of Leviticus. And so David, of course, summons her, brings her into his room, sleeps with her that night, and she becomes pregnant. After she becomes pregnant, David tries to cover it up. He calls in Uriah the Hittite, that is her husband, and tries to convince him to go back home and sleep with his wife. But Uriah the Hittite is not going to go back home because it's a time of war. And it's not right for him to go and sleep with his wife whenever all his men are at war. David gets him drunk, even tries to get Uriah the Hittite to go and sleep with Bathsheba, but Uriah will not do it. David's attempt to cover up his sin will not work with that strategy. So what David does to Uriah the Hittite, he says, Uriah... Here's a message. Give this message. He conceals it in a letter. He says, give this message to Joab, your commander. Uriah says, yes, sir. I'll take that message to Joab. And in that message is Uriah's own death warrant. Uriah is faithful, doesn't even look at the message, gives the message to Joab. Joab opens the letter and it says, an order from David. When Uriah the Hittite is in the front of the battle, in the heat of the battle, pull back so that Uriah is killed. That's David's order to Joab to kill Uriah the Hittite. What's interesting about this story, even some of the details in it, is that whenever Joab attacks the city and puts Uriah in front of the battle, and pulls back, it's not just Uriah who dies. Several other men die with Uriah the Hittite. It shows you how David's plan to murder Uriah, it also results in the death of several other men in his armed forces. And then it gets even to a, 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 new, a lower low in the narrative here in chapter 11, Whenever David hears about the death of Uriah and even the death of the other men who died with him, you see his heart is very cold and callous in this moment. He hears about the death of Uriah and the men, and he sends a report back to Joab, and he says this. Think of how cold and callous this is. He says, do not let this displease you, Joab, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack on the city. That's how he just treats it like it's no big deal after losing all that, all those men. Now, there's one thing that's also shockingly horrific about David's murder of Uriah the Hittite. And that is in Second Samuel chapter 23. There's a list of 37 mighty men, 37 mighty men who were great warriors for David. And Uriah the Hittite was one of them. This was not simply a common soldier. This is one of the the main men that David had learned to depend upon with battle and arms. And here he kills one of his mighty men. Also, we know this from other biblical references, that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel. That's his name, Ahithophel. And so whenever David takes Bathsheba and kills her husband, he is breaking the trust, breaking that relationship with one of his most trusted advisors, and that was Ahithophel, who's the grandfather of Bathsheba. When you do the math and the context as well, you can see that when David takes Bathsheba, he is at least a a generation older than her. He is using his... His age, he is using his, uh, his position to take her. And then he's using his command to kill her husband. You can see how heinous this sin is and aggravating it is in the sight of God and man and how horrible it is. Now at this point, since Uriah is dead, now David going to take Bathsheba to be his wife. And she gives birth to a baby. This is the middle point of the story here, in the middle point of the chapter, where the Lord sends in Nathan. And this is where things will change. God sends in the prophet Nathan to trap David in a story. Nathan tells the story about a poor, poor man who had one little lamb that his family loved, and they loved that little lamb. But a rich man was going to have a feast, was going to have a party for a house guest. But that rich man did not want to use one of his many sheep to feed the house guest. So the rich man took that poor man's lamb and slaughtered it and then fed the house guest, the only lamb from that poor man. So David, what should we do toward this rich man? David got so mad about this, he said, that He said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And David said this, that rich man shall restore fourfold for that lamb. That means that rich man needs to give four lambs back and he needs to suffer the death penalty. That was David's verdict against the story that Nathan mentioned. At that moment, Nathan points the finger to him and says, You are the man. You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. Therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David. Well, sure enough, that comes true. Nathan's prophecy comes true. You see, for the rest of David's life, there is... There's death, there's destruction. And even in the house of David, you're going to see for the rest of the kings, there's blood, there's turmoil all through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So it ripples effect, it ripples and even magnifies there in generations following. Also, David's verdict, remember this, David's verdict that he gave to the story of restoring fourfold to that, for that poor man's lamb. God in his providence made sure that David suffered the same. David would lose four children before he died at 70 years old. So all this providential justice comes right back upon David in his life. Now at this point, <clears throat> this is where David actually hits rock bottom, spiritually speaking, and then, then he returns to the Lord David said this, this is what changes everything. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. And that's when David wrote Psalm 51, which you can read about his repentance, his confession, and his trusting in God's forgiveness and his restoration with God. And he says, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And what he's thinking about there is King Saul. Saul. King Saul had the Holy Spirit for a time, but King Saul did not repent. King Saul was hardened in his sin, and God took his Holy Spirit, and he lost his kingship, lost his position. But here the Holy Spirit stays with David, He's not removed from David, and he stays as king. And God continues to work through him uh, in his life, but he's going to suffer a lot of consequences for his sin. One of the consequences... That he will suffer immediately is that after this child is born, this child will soon die. Now, you'll see this when you put this together that this child is suffering as David's substitute, even suffering the death penalty. But ultimately, who suffers the death penalty for Christ? Who suffers the death penalty for David? It's the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to ultimately suffer for all of our sins and David's sins. But in this narrative, in this story, there is a child of David here that will be put to death as a substitute, as a foreshadow of what Jesus Christ will do, the greater David, the greater son of David. So this first son of David and Bathsheba will be killed by God. And he'll suffer because of David's sin. And we understand that this is a foreshadow of what Christ is going to do. It helps you understand this, that God does not do this anymore. God only did this. He only killed this child in this narrative as a foretaste, as a foreshadow of what Jesus would do. God does not put a child to death for the sins of the parents. The reason why is because Jesus fulfilled that typology. We had that typology here in the story of David when God kills this child and Jesus fulfills it. End of story. It's done. Your sins are paid for. Jesus is a scapegoat, the sacrifice, the son of David, who's put to death for David's sin, your sin, our sins. And God does not do that anymore because it's fulfilled in Christ. At that moment when the son dies, and that child dies, this first child dies, David mentions these famous words that you've heard before. He says, I shall not go to him, talking about his son who, who's dead, but he shall, re- but he, uh, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me, David says. Now we come to our passage today where Solomon is born. Turn to chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Let me first of all point out the word replacement to summarize what's going on here. Solomon is born as a replacement for the child who died. The child's dead. He suffered as a substitute for David, as a typology of Christ. Now there's another son born to David and Bathsheba replacing him. This theme of replacement you see throughout the Bible. You see, whenever Cain killed Abel, God raised up Seth to replace Abel. Whenever Saul rebelled without repentance, God replaced King Saul with King David. This is all following the the example of the first Adam. When he fell, God was looking forward to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, to replace the first Adam. We also see this. In the Old Testament, the Israel of the Old Testament, that Jewish community, that covenant community, is replaced by the New Testament Israel, the Church in the New Testament. So you see here this continual theme of replacement here, in even in the book, uh, even in the, the birth of Solomon. The name. Also, let's now look at the name, the, the renaming that's going on here. <clears throat> Notice that David names him Solomon. And the name Solomon means peace. But then it says the Lord loved him. And so the Lord sent a message through through Jedidiah, call him Jedidiah. Or he sends a message through Nathan saying call him Jedidiah. The name Jedidiah means loved by the Lord or loved by, by Jehovah. Now let me explain to you what it means to be loved by God in this particular context and in this passage and in other passages as well. In many passages in the Bible, when it says that God loved the person, it's it's equivalent to saying that God chooses the person for a position. For example, you've heard that that Bible passage that says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. In that particular context... In that particular verse, it's a reference to Jacob's position in the covenant lineage in history. It's superior. Jacob is chosen to fulfill that covenant position, which is superior to Esau's position outside the covenant lineage. That's what he means by Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated. You also have the same point whenever Jesus talks about the hatred in the family. In Luke chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says this Anyone who comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. That language of hate there, he's simply saying, He's not saying I'm gnashing my teeth, I'm hating my family. It's a hatred of a position, meaning this You love Jesus Christ most of all, and everyone else is second. Everyone else is secondary. You serve everyone else secondary. You, you serve Jesus Christ primary, first. That's what he means in that context of hatred. And you can tell how that would be applicable to the Jewish community in the first century. These Jewish people loved their family, loved their Jewish identity. Jesus says, you've got to be loyal to me first. That's what he meant when he was talking about the hatred there uh, toward mother and father and children and brothers and sisters and all that. Same thing here. When God said when it says, "God loved Solomon," it means he's chosen for a position to be the king. <clears throat> he is going to be the king in the next generation. That's what he means by saying that he's upgrading his name to Jedediah. <clears throat> now, why? Why does God? move forward in such a way like this, replacing this son, positioning the king here, not destroying David, moving forward in such a gracious manner? The answer comes because of really down to one thing, God's promise. In Second Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to David. God said to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. That promise came in chapter 7. Well, in chapter 11, David falls flat on his face. David falls flat on his face with his sin, his rebellion, but God's promise still stands. Is David's sin going to throw out God's promises? No. No. Is David's murder and sin and rebellion going to throw out God's promises? No. God is going to move forward. He's going to have a replacement. He's going to have a plan. He's going to outmaneuver, outflank the sin of mankind and move forward with his promises of redemption. This is the beautiful part of Solomon's birth. You have to tie it together realizing that God is forcing his promises through the sin of His people, and He's moving forward. You can apply this in a couple of ways. Let me make this application to you. And that is, number one, God's redeeming promises are unstoppable. They are unstoppable. His redeeming promises. This means this, that God has a way of outfoxing or outflanking the sin of man, the plans of Satan, and the rebellion of the world. You see this as an apex on the cross of Christ. They killed Jesus Christ. It looks like Satan won. It looks like all the world kills God on the cross when you look at it. But God's like, nope, I'm going to use that to accomplish redemption. Not even that can stop the promises, the redeeming promises of God. God's redeeming promises are unstoppable. That's what you see here in the birth of Solomon. Let me apply this a little, little bit more personally to you as well, this, this same theme. Think of this. God promises in the New Testament that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, either by conversion or by conquest. God promises that the kingdom of heaven will grow like a mustard seed into a massive, awesome, massive tree. And the kingdom of God, His church, will continue to grow and grow and grow. This reveals God's strength and His wisdom, but you know what Christians oftentimes do? They watch the news, they see all the bad news, and they, their knee jerk reaction is this The world's coming to an end, oh, it's all over, it's all gonna be, it's all, all gonna end this week, or something like that. And they'll have different theories on what's gonna happen this year or next year. If America's ending, they think, Oh, it's all over. Listen. If America ends, no matter how bad it gets, whatever wars we face in in this century, God has a way of outmaneuvering all that stuff. God has a way of continuing His redeeming promises because it is unstoppable. It doesn't matter how bad things get in America or throughout the world or what deaths we suffer or what we see on the news media. You Christians should always be optimistic about the future of God's kingdom, even if it moves on without us. Know that God's light will continue radiating throughout the world. Somehow it's going to outmaneuver Islam. Somehow it's going to outmaneuver all of the false religions that are in the world, all the hatred that's against Christianity. We may go through a time of darkness, but there will be times of light. God has a way of showing His strength and His wisdom by outmaneuvering all this and fulfilling His redeeming promises and applying redemption to the world. This is why when you look at eschatology and you study end times, I am adamantly what's called a post-millennial, meaning that Jesus Christ has been reigning and ruling over all of creation ever since AD 70. And he's been ruling over all this. And he is going to bring all enemies under his feet eventually. And the last enemy that would be destroyed is death. There is no reason to look at the Bible and to be pessimistic about the future of God's kingdom. God's kingdom goes from darkness to light. With God, everything is better in the end. So I don't care how bad the news is that you see. Think of Solomon, think of David, think of all the events in Scripture and how God was able to outmaneuver, outflank the works of the devil, the works of the nations, and bring something better in the end. Even if God has to bring up a replacement of Thompson Memorial, or a replacement for the PCA, or a replacement for a pastor, or a replacement for you, something's going to happen in the future that's going to make it better. That's how powerful God is in applying His promises. He doesn't even let death get in the way. He brings life out of death. That's what He's doing in a a simple way here in the life here, in the birth of Solomon. Now, let me end this sermon with, with a question. Why? Why does God choose Bathsheba? To bring in the next king. You think about it. When you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3. David had seven wives. And that was sinful. If you include Saul's daughter. There's a a full seven. And then Bathsheba is the eighth wife. Now if you were writing the Bible. And telling history. Or if you were God. Maybe you would choose Abigail. She was smart. She was wise. She was married to that fool Nabal, but she had the right words, the right wisdom, the right time. That would be a good lady to produce a, the, the next king through. But here, God chooses Bathsheba. And Let me suggest to you an answer as to why. Because God chooses the one that you least expect. That's how God often works. Remember Jephthah in the book of Judges? They didn't like him because his mother was a prostitute. So they kicked him out of the tribe, but God raised him up and used him, the one they least expected, to come and rescue them in their hour of need. Here, Bathsheba has had an adulterous relationship here with with David. Yes, David's a greater sin, but also it seems to be that she was willing as well even though she mourned her husband's loss. Also, it seems like God is redemptively attracted to this mess. He sees the mess. He sees how horrible it is. And he says, oh, yes, I'm going to use this to bring out something good. Think of that phrase, redemptively attracted. That's the disposition of your father, your heavenly father, where he's looking and saying, yes, yes. I can bring a light, a lot of light out of this darkness or in this darkness. This is exactly what God does with the birth of Solomon with Bathsheba. He uses the one lady in, in the list of David's wives as which one will be the one who gives birth to the next king. God is redemptively attracted to the cross of Christ. Whenever Christ dies on the cross, God says, yes, I can use this. I will use this darkness, this death of my son to bring salvation to the world. This shows you a couple things in this passage. We've seen the wisdom and the strength of God in his redeeming promises are unstoppable. Here you see the grace of God where his grace is attracted to darkness. His grace is attracted to to a mess, and he wants to make beautiful things out of it and bring something great and marvelous from it. This is how Solomon's life begins. It begins with the grace of God in the midst of all of this mess, and we're going to see his ups and downs. We're going to see how the Lord used him, and maybe God will even impart wisdom and strength to us whenever we apply it to ourselves. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for our time together. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you in your presence will bring light to this world. That those who seem to have no hope, those who seem that they are surrounded by such darkness and misery, that Lord, you will be the light to them. And that you remind us and show us that your redeeming promises are unstoppable. Our sin is... The rebellion of the world and even Satan cannot stop your redeeming promises because you are that much of a loving and powerful Heavenly Father. We pray, Lord, that you will even renew us in your grace and your love and mercy today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.